The Sisyphus, a Sisyphusian fan fiction podcast, where each week we feature a different author, each telling a story about a single day in the life of Sisyphus, a man doomed by Hades to an eternity of pushing a giant stone up a hill every day and following it down the hill every night. This episode, written and read by Paul Oberowski. Sisyphus ran his calloused finger down the crease, where the brushed aluminum met the edge of the glass that shielded the power line running the length of the wall. The beveled edge of the polished metal felt smooth to the touch, and under it, a faint dark blue glow shone through the glass. He always found it useful to use these small power couplings as personal landmarks throughout the ship, partially because of their striking visual appearance, but also because they were mounted above each and every dark matter ripjet in the ship. As he walked, his finger reached the end of the housing that contained the coupler lines, until the lines veered off to the right and into the wall, on their way to another useful piece of machinery. He had always enjoyed the tactile sensations of the ship, the way it seemed to hum just to him, the way the vibrations rattled the dishes in the galley as the ship jumped to near light speed, the familiar smell of burnt metal when they fired up the plasma coils, the massive exposed bundles of colored wires suspended above everyone's heads, thick ones, thin ones, every color, twisted wires zip-tied together. Sisyphus thought the wires above to be a fitting metaphor for the people hurrying along below them, weaving up and down the tubular hallways as they departed from different places and journeyed down a path together for a short time and then disengaged with each other to end up at different destinations to connect to different machines. Sometimes Sisyphus would walk amongst the tide of crew members and officers as they crashed about the ship, readying for battles or for near-light jumps, and he'd see the wires come together and travel the length of a hallway. Dozens of them bundled together, and then one thin little coiled copper wire, just one, would branch off from the rest and terminate at a plastic wall-mounted sensor, as if to say, You guys go ahead. I'm satisfied. I'm happy with where I am and this sensor. This is what contentment feels like. Passing crew members would bump into Sisyphus's shoulder as he stared up at the wire, wondering how it could be so stupid as to settle for a dumb gas sensor. Straining his neck up, as engineers and cooks brushed up behind him, he said, You dummy. You have no idea where those wires are going. They could be going straight up to the drive cortex. Some of them could be feeding power back to the focus relays. Some of those wires could accept the open fire codes from the captain. Some of those wires could be relaying power to the machines in the sickbay. Some of those wires could be changing and saving lives. And you settled for a gas monitor? Okay, well, it keeps an eye on the carbon monoxide levels. But you realize that plasma-fired Class G building regulation mandates these be installed every 20 meters? Even I remember that one. 
So you just got another two on either side of you 20 meters away. And honestly, they're much closer to any systems that are going to be setting off alarms first. You're basically useless. Sisyphus was certainly more confident pointing out the folly of a tiny wire's life choices than he was being assertive with another human. I'm sorry, wire. I shouldn't have said that. After all, I installed you. Sisyphus turned and joined the flow of crew members walking the halls, away from the sensor and towards the aft of the ship. Though he was part of the division that relied the most heavily on technicality and precision, his connection with the ship wasn't all that technical. In fact, the junior members of engineering could often recite back schematics, specifications, and protocols much more accurately than he could. No, his connection with the guts of the ship was more sensory, more tactile than the others. The fresh-faced engineering graduates, wholly proficient in book study and memorization, could tell him exactly why the wire had malfunctioned. Oh, well this board is a 3-amp board, and the near-light jump always bends back the electromagnetic field, so if it doesn't have any space-time anchors installed in the line, then the wiring needs to meet or exceed double the normally needed specifications so as to compensate for signal loss when making high-speed jumps. Straight out of the book. Sisyphus, on the other hand, was more of an educated guesser. But better than that, he didn't really guess. He was just educated. His guesses were right at pretty much the same rate as the diagnosis of any of the younger engineers in his department. But Sisyphus came to his conclusions much earlier, without consulting his tablet. He would just look it over, run his hands over the guts of the machine, and say, This wire feels a little warm. A lot of current going through here. Resistance shouldn't be this high. Let's just install a bigger gauge and then we don't need to worry about it anymore. It was an intuition built from years of working on the same ship. And the years gave the ship that familiar feeling of home, as in real home, as a static place on a planet. Even though they were shooting through space at amazingly high speeds. Perhaps it was easier to think that you were home, that you were in a place. Because you couldn't tell from looking out the window how incredibly fast you were actually going. The distant stars just stayed in their places. And the things that were close enough to see, well, they shot right by you so fast you could never detect it with the naked eye. They were on a mission to rescue a stranded A-class carrier named Titan. Apparently the Titan's thrust division had gotten the bright idea that you could return plasma flow back through the mainline couplers without calibrating the inlets for reverse flow. Oh, so uh, let's just open the inlets up all the way so we can run all the lines in reverse, Sisyphus said to himself as he walked down the hall. He chuckled. He'd like to think he's done a better job of training new members of his thrust works division. He knows that his boys would never make that kind of a rookie assumption. The ship on which Sisyphus worked, the Perilous, was a mid-sized Class G warship. It also happened to be the only ship in this sector capable of staging such a rescue. And that wasn't because they had some huge battlecruiser. It's only because they met the bare minimum requirement for crew capacity 
to transport an entire A-class carrier's crew. Sisyphus dreaded the thought of having to share his quarters with... Who? Three people? Four people? He'd get up to pee in the middle of the night, and there'd be someone in his bathroom. He'd have to endure a symphony of snoring. Limited rations. All the good beer in his mini-fridge would get drunk. He shuddered at the thought. But he also knew it was necessary that the whole crew was going to have to make that kind of a sacrifice. He knew that his ship was the only one that could make it in a reasonable amount of time. Ideally, there would have been another A-class carrier within range of a rescue operation. Between the two of them, Sisyphus thought, there might actually be enough staff to run the one working ship. A-class carriers were notoriously understaffed, perhaps because of their size, which was massive, and perhaps also because they were ships used mostly in profit-making endeavors, so operators were incentivized to spend as little as possible on overhead. Long shifts, tired crew, and look what happens. Mistakes happened. Conversely, ships like Sisyphus's, which patrolled the endless void to rescue friends from peril and defend humans against enemies, didn't need to worry about being understaffed. Their job was to ensure the safety and comfort of the human race, and that, apparently, is something that humans don't like skimping on. The hum of the ripjets vibrated the walls of the ship as they constantly calibrated themselves to the waves in space-time that they sailed through rocking the tip of the ship back as it burst through negatively charged electromagnetic fields. The ripjets never quite hummed in unison, emitting low, moving tones that made an ever-changing, ever-dissonant drone. It would probably be about one AU hour until they docked with the Titan, and you could just see it now. The airlocks open, and in comes a crew three times the size of theirs that hasn't had a hot shower in two weeks that have been getting by on cold emergency rations, whose personal tablets must have long run out of charge. They're going to be... the worst. Taking up every outlet, making a mess in the rec chamber, peeing in his toilet in the middle of the night when he really had to go. Maybe, he thought, I could just lock this door for a month and not let anybody in. But then he realized that he'd have to live on cold emergency rations for a month. And be pretty heavily chastised by his superiors when they returned to Earth. And probably be looked at as a selfish prick by every single member of the carrier's crew. And his own crew. At least a few of them would have to accommodate an extra person in their quarters just because of him. What if his CEO was one of those people? It'd be terrible. Oh, man. Not worth it. Everybody would look at him in the halls afterwards and think, That guy. That's the guy that did that to me. As the Perilous's ripjets powered down, and as the momentum inhibitors fired up, Sisyphus couldn't help but wonder about what would happen to the broken carrier that they left there. Had the other Thrustworks engineers done irreparable damage to the ship? Were the inlets really permanently fused open? Because, besides the broken stuff, that ship would have some really, really useful tech to have around as spare parts. If this massive ship was really just being left there, 
If it really was not worth fixing, if the whole plasma array was shot, then were they just going to scuttle it? What about all the other valuable components in there? Sisyphus wished that he could spend a whole week by himself in the carrier, just taking out spare parts. And not random stuff, either. He could spend an entire week just getting rare parts. Parts that require compounds and elements that the 3D printer either can't print or sometimes just doesn't have the materials. Some of them are pretty rare. And he wasn't just about to go in and cut off a pipe either end of these things and pull out this unsightly mess of jagged pipe and grimy housing. No. He'd do it right. Unscrewing all the connectors, removing the brackets, and taking out the components to be cleaned and sorted for storage in the equipment hangar. Instead, he probably wouldn't even have the time to get on board the carrier and see what was wrong with it. At most, they would be joined together for ten hours, connected in an aerobic embrace as humans, personal belongings, service vehicles, and essential resources had a mass migration from a large, broken ship into a smaller, functional one. They would spin in the middle of the blackness. To everyone else in the universe, they were but a heat signature on a sensor array, or a tiny speck of dust in an endless sky of celestial bodies. And then they would part ways, probably never to see each other again. Even the crew from the carrier would probably never see their ship again, at least if rumors about the plasma array's condition were true. They would have to abandon that ship forever, and abandon their rooms, their homes. It was at this point that Sisyphus didn't feel so bad about inviting the stranded carrier crew into his quarters. They might be about to lose theirs permanently, places they had felt that sense of home for years, sometimes decades, and they would never be able to go back again. Sisyphus thought of his own quarters, cramped, but his. He thought of the little things that made it distinct from every other room on his deck. The dent in the wall from when he unsuccessfully tried to lift his bed up off the frame to make a bunch of storage room underneath, or the holes in the metal from when he had mounted his computer monitor on the wall. It was those little things that made his space his. And those people were losing that. After this, their holes, their scrapes, their failures, their loves, would just be a memory. Never again could they make love in their cots or cry in their showers. It would have to be a new shower, a new cot, a new life, a new home. He hoped that the Titan's crew wasn't as careless as he thought, and that perhaps a salvage operation could be undertaken, that these people could eventually return to their homes. He descended the long staircase down into Thrustworks. It was where so many of the wires either came from or ended up, depending on your perspective. It was nonsense to think of them as either. The wires were neither coming from Thrustworks or going to it. They were connections between two points. And without the two things to connect, there would be no point. The wires were useless if they didn't have two things to connect. Even if it was the main navigational computer on the bridge, it wouldn't matter how many wires it had coming out of it if they didn't all have something to connect to on the other end. Conversely, 
All his fancy machinery and thrust works wouldn't fire up without someone, way up in command in a small room on the very front of the ship, flipping a little switch or turning a little dial. Without that connection on the other side, this towering opus magnum of human engineering wouldn't budge. He took the final step down, down to the lower floor. Here, in the aft of the ship, floors ended in balconies to accommodate towering plasma coils and massive metal arms and pipes and power couplings that arched their backs up and reached their gadgetry towards the edges of the ship. From this bottom floor, he could see all the way up to the top of the ship, a perspective that so few people had. Really, only thrust crew and an occasional senior officer would ever be able to look down at their feet and see the only thing between them and space, and look up above their heads and see the only thing between them and space. For the vast majority of the humans that spent every hour of their day here, whenever they looked at a wall, there was always something, or someone, on the other side of that wall. They never had to think about the fact that they were surrounded literally by nothing. It was just a vacuum out there. They never had to grasp the fact that they were really out in the middle of nowhere without someone to save them. There was always a sleeping quarter on the other side of the wall, or an observatory where someone was reading, or a rec center where people were having fun. To the vast majority of the ship's inhabitants, there was always something to insulate you from the terrifying reality of the wholly unnatural action of human space travel. He ran his hand over the surface of the brushed aluminum plating on the outside of one of the main power couplings. Unlike the small couplers that were occasionally visible throughout the ship, these were significantly larger, as thick as a tree log, and longer than his arm span. They were all routed to inlets on the surface of the ship. The machinery made a deep rumble, and Sisyphus closed his eyes and lay his hand flat against the surface of the metal, feeling the vibration of the engines underneath as they strained to reverse the ship's massive forward momentum. He took a deep breath, leaned forward, and with his eyes still closed, he placed both hands flat against the housing. Just a little bit more, he whispered. Moments later, as if she had heard him whisper, an officer on the bridge had inched the thrust lever in her left hand up just a bit. The engine hummed louder and vibrated slightly harder under his hands. It spooled up a bit faster, its buzzing whir becoming a persistent tone. Yet the harder, faster vibrations seemed to put the engine in resonance with the rest of the rumbling ship. He commended her intuition. The engine he was leaning against seemed to now be working in harmony with the rest of a ship, and not as one of a collection of crude mechanical systems operating with no knowledge of each other. The perilous eventually came to a stop relative to the carrier, and the plasma coils powered down. An uncomfortable silence rang in Sisyphus's ears as everyone grabbed their jackets and tablets and made the long trip up the stairs to Deck 15, where most of the tech crews lived. In his quarters, Sisyphus lay back in his cot. Surely the carrier's thrust division officers had properly assessed the condition of the drive system. 
Surely they had made sure the inlets couldn't be isolated, drained, and refurbished. Surely they had done that. But what if they hadn't? He had a hundred questions for them. But they were in a heavy gravitational field of a nearby red supergiant star, and they were slowly accelerating towards it. They had to get out of there as soon as everything, and everyone, was on board. And since the various engineering departments would likely be some of the last crew members of the Titan to make their way onto the Perilous, once they were on board, Sisyphus would likely have to focus his attention on making sure that their own engines could push all of their collective mass away from the massive star that was slowly pulling them towards it. He couldn't wait. He got up out of his cot and slid open the thin carbon fiber door to his quarters. It was about a five-minute walk to the main port quarter airlock in connection to the Titan. The cargo airlock itself was about ten meters high and ten meters wide, large enough to accommodate the largest of service vehicles. Dozens of crew members frantically rearranged pallets of packaged food supplies, backup water filters, capacitor banks, and other useful supplies from the Titan. They were all in a hurry and moving things at an impressive rate. While the carrier wasn't well-staffed for a ship of its size, there was still an impressive number of workers from both ships, heaving bags of supplies and zipping between the ships with small pallet movers. Sisyphus made his way through to the airlock itself, which not only sealed in the air of the ships, but also anchored the two together. There were no lightweight polymers or carbon fiber to be found. The engineers who designed this had only one goal in mind, and it wasn't cutting down on total mass. It was building the most heavy-duty connection they could. Huge automated steel bars from the Titan were locked into slots on the floor and ceiling of the Perilous's cargo bay. The airlock itself was affixed to the bay doors with brackets as big as Sisyphus himself. He walked into the cargo bay of the Titan. Surprisingly, it was only slightly larger than the Perilous's. However, there was significantly more commotion in the Titans. Sisyphus noticed the crisscross of well-worn grooves in the floor from years of moving large shipping containers around. Several workers were loading small packages into a larger shipping crate and going back to get more. A woman, wearing a worried look on her face and dressed in more casual clothing, was carrying what looked like personal belongings. She also had a small child in tow, who was taking twice as many steps as her and struggling to keep up with her brisk pace. An officer stood writing on a clipboard in front of stacked boxes of food as they were being labeled and sent off to various destinations on the Perilous. Sisyphus made his way through the circus of activity and onto the main concourse. The main concourse of the Titan was wide, but its length was its most impressive dimension. It ran almost the entire length of the ship. It was probably a 20-minute walk from fore to aft, but it was a beautiful walk, with impeccably clean white lines and chrome accents. Unlike the utilitarian nature of the Perilous, this carrier looked as though it was designed to be beautiful as well as useful. Though the concourse was the main hub of the ship, there was probably only a few dozen people in it at the time, and they were all moving with purpose to wherever they needed to go. 
This was the first time Sisyphus regretted not prioritizing schematics memorization. This would be an opportune time to know which one of these doors or hallways could take him to the Titan's thrustworks. He didn't have his tablet on him either. And he didn't feel like it was appropriate for him to ask any of the Titan's crew to help him navigate the ship. It seemed like they had more important matters to attend to. Almost right away, as Sisyphus walked farther and farther from the bustle of the cargo bay, he felt unsettled by the quiet. Other than the voices of the people echoing off the hard surfaces of the concourse, there was no sound to the ship. That subtle, vibrating hum that Sisyphus was so used to hearing was just a ringing, empty space in his ears. There was no heartbeat to this ship, just empty space that had more oxygen inside than empty space on the outside of it. He put his hand to the floor to try and feel anything. It felt static, cold. He stood up straight and started walking aft, not quite sure where he was headed. Eventually, he found himself at the Titan's thrustworks. He opened the door, and though any normal person would stand, mouth agape, at the sheer dimensions of the colossal array of brushed aluminum machinery, Sisyphus immediately made his way to one of the pipes that led to an inlet on the exterior of the ship. Standing on a metal balcony far above the floor, he grabbed onto the locking levers and pulled them as hard as he could, unhinging the pipe from the inlet. It fell to the ground with a loud bang, which echoed through the cavernous, unoccupied thrustworks. He ran his fingers over the seam between the two moving pieces. They were flush, but not fused together. He smacked it with his open palm. It didn't move. You guys really messed this up good. He looked around for a mallet. When he finally found one, he came back to the inlet and landed a heavy blow to the lip of the metal. It moved slightly. They weren't fused together, but they certainly looked that way. They were just stuck in the fully open position. The engineering crew messed them up bad by not calibrating them, but they didn't permanently ruin them. All they really needed was positive flow and then, hopefully, the auto-calibration should kick in. All they had to do was directly hook up one core to the other core, a closed loop, and run the perilous with backwards flow, essentially using one beating heart to get another heart beating again. The Titan would be fine. Nobody would have to leave their homes. Nobody would have to start life anew. Nobody would pee all over his toilet seat in the middle of the night. A dozen Thrustworks engineers positioned a joining pipe between the inlets of both the Titan and the Perilous, and threw their locking levers on the heavy-duty metal connectors. With one hand on the pipe, and another holding his communicator to his ear, Sisyphus called up Thrustworks to fire up the core in reverse flow. Under his hand, there was a faint, growing vibration as the pressure built and the impeccable engine breathed life back into the Titan. He indulged himself in a smile. Then, a high-pitched whine at the edge of human hearing cut through the commotion of the cargo bay, and the pipe shuddered. 
No. Come on, Sisyphus shouted in frustration, startling the other workers bustling about who had no idea what had just happened. Sisyphus and the others rushed back to the aft of the perilous and confirmed what Sisyphus already knew. One of the main coupling tubes had fractured and was now slowly dripping its contents onto the unpainted metal floor. A group of younger engineers scratched their heads and scrunched up their noses as they crouched around it, watching a glowing dark blue liquid drip out, splash against the floor, and quickly dissolve into the air. The glass is completely cracked. Look at it, one of them said. Are we venting that? Sisyphus asked. Yes, of course. They didn't look up from their gazes at the broken piece. Sisyphus crossed his arms and sighed. Okay, I should have looked at the tolerances in the manual. But we didn't have time to run every scenario through the probability computer. We learned from our mistakes, right? Let's just print up a new one and get it installed before we have to leave in a few hours. It's not that simple, one of the junior thrustworks officers said. These Class G ships go a lot faster than the old ones. That's why these are all internally coated with Nemerizer lattice. You can't just print up a standard glass one. If you put that in, it'd shatter into a thousand pieces the instant you opened up power to it. It'd break a lot worse than this one did. Sisyphus instantly recognized the irony of the situation. It was his own desire to save a second ship that he had doomed both of them. They would have to wait for a rescue mission for themselves. Soon word came back from Terran relays through the quantum entanglement communicators, and it became clear that, because of a unique combination of circumstance and physics, there was no ship that could attempt this kind of a rescue. The Perilous was now housing both their own crew and that of an A-class carrier, and there weren't any ships that could accept both crews and successfully make a jump with three ships worth of people, fuel, vehicles, and resources on board. And because of their proximity to a massive star, they were accelerating, slowly but steadily, towards it. Introducing more mass to that equation would only increase the energy required for any ship to push out of the gravitational field of this massive star. They couldn't get any smaller ships to come rescue them either. Without high-speed capability, it would take thousands of years for anyone to reach them and a small service ship couldn't deliver a 3D printer capable of manufacturing the broken part, either. The main cargo airlocks in either ship were occupied by being connected to each other. Disconnecting from the Titan would let them off the hook, but the Perilous was already depending on the solar arrays from both ships to keep it from accelerating even faster towards the star. The models took this into account when calculating whether a rescue mission was possible. Letting it drift off into the incineration range of the supergiant would sacrifice the extra solar arrays that the Perilous was using to keep itself out of destruction. As crew members now scrambled around him, having dozens of independent, frantic conversations about how to fix the issue, Sisyphus silently stood in place with his fist under his chin, staring at the now empty main coupler on the floor in front of him. He pulled his communicator out of his pocket and held it to his ear. Hey, can you get me telemetry? Yeah, hi. 
Hey, so with this coupler down, we know we're accelerating towards the supergiant faster than we'd like, but uh, how, how fast do we need to accelerate in the opposite direction to actually get away from this thing to a more stable gravitational field? Really? Okay. I'll get back to you. He bent over and wrapped the thick glass with the back of his knuckles. It made a hollow bong sound. He rocked it on the floor. Not too heavy. He squatted down next to it. With his rough hand, he followed the angular edges of the regulators that sat on top of the coupling. He traced his fingertip over the hairline crack that ran from the front almost all the way to the back. He could barely feel it. It was much more visible if you turned your head a certain way, and suddenly you would see a wall of a crack in the thick, curved glass. He ran his hand over the brushed aluminum rings that held the coupler in place. Mina, he said, still squatting next to the coupler. This still works, right? It just leaks? So we can, we can still run the ship at limited acceleration capacity. And I know, was, I, I know we'd lose fuel pretty quick, but between our panels and the panels on the Titan pointed a massive friggin' supergiant, we gotta have enough fuel to get us out of here. At least keep us stable. At least until we figure something out. Mina, standing behind him, put her hand on his shoulder. You know we'd never be able to get enough fuel on the Perilous at once. To accelerate to a safe spot relative to the gravity of the supergiant, we'd have to refuel from the carrier multiple times. And the Titan is shot. It can't keep itself from being pulled into that star. A junior engineer chimed in. Wouldn't we also have to manually refuel this coupler? Sisyphus ignored him. So we'd have to take the carrier with all its solar arrays with us. Mina nodded. Sisyphus frowned. Uh, run that through the probability computer at... I already did, she said, interrupting Sisyphus. And the comm came to the same conclusion you did. And it came back with, in every generated permutation, we have to stay connected with the disabled cruiser. Sisyphus pulled his communicator out of his pocket and poked a button. <laughs> Telemetry. Hey, how fast are we accelerating towards the star? Nineteen hundred meters per second squared, they responded. And, uh, Mina, what's the maximum accelerating force this rig can handle right now? Right now? Uh... She squinted at a sea of numbers on her console screen. Right now it seems like, uh... Okay, so it's calculating uh, total mass to be accelerated as the sum and contents of both ships. So based on that, it's got it governed at uh, 1,800 meters per second squared now. Could it handle another 100? Uh, probably. We're pushing our luck at even 1,800 per second squared. Raise the governing flow rate. Let's see what we can do. Sisyphus walked back over to the broken coupler. He bent over and slid one arm between the aluminum stabilizer rings and the glass itself. His arm barely fit, 
but it was snug. He got his other arm around it as far as it would go, and was able to get a decent grip on a bracket holding a regulator. It was quite heavy, but once he had both his arms in position, it wasn't as cumbersome as he had feared. He looked down at his feet and up at the ceiling to get his bearings, and as he walked toward the bottom step of the exposed metal staircase, he took it one step at a time. He made his way gradually up to the top, the first part of the trip to recharge his broken piece from the massive solar panel arrays on the abandoned Titan. He had already hauled the coupler back and forth twice, when it became apparent that the Perilous was having difficulty pushing the connected ships against the gravitational pull of the nearby supergiant. He was on his third trip over to the solar array when his communicator buzzed. He let the coupler down quickly, and the thud echoed down the hard surfaces of the empty concourse. Yes? Sis, we can't keep up without the coupler being constantly refueled. Even if we took an hour off, we'd drift closer to the star. And the closer we get, the faster our velocity. We can't afford to dip below that threshold. And so he continued. He had started counting the trips, and then he tired of that. Sometimes he wished that he kept track of how many times he took the long walk up the long staircase from the bowels of the Perilous, through Deck 17 and over to the port access corridor, and across the Perilous's cargo bay. Soon he started counting the steps instead of the trips. It was 238 steps from the airlock to the Titan's main concourse. It was another 650 or so steps to the solar array observation deck. The coupler, when topped up with fuel, wasn't any larger than when it was empty, and so nobody ever assumed that it ever required a second person to carry it. Yes, it was objectively heavy because it had a lot of mass, and they were so close to a massive star, and yes, the addition of more fuel made it even heavier, but still, nobody offered to help. Sisyphus guessed that they all forgot the times he had saved their butts with some technical wizardry. He could unhook a hose and redirect ports on the fly, long before any know-it-all upstart could scroll through the FAQ for a solution. No. To them, he was now just the guy who messed everything up. Then again, Sisyphus never thought to ask anyone for help either. He kind of thought of this as his own responsibility, to make sure that he kept everyone else out of harm. So he made the trips alone, which were okay. The back and forth parts weren't great. On the way to refuel, it was a pain because he had to climb up the stairs bear-hugging a massive coupler. On the way back from the Titan, the refueled coupler was, of course, significantly heavier. But that wasn't even what bothered him about the trip back. It was the looks he'd get. And even his brief stops back at Thrustworks weren't that great either. Nobody asked him for advice anymore. He just leaned up against the reattached coupler, catching his breath, as half the contents flowed into the plasma coils, and half dripped out onto the floor. He would then unhook the coupler, get his arm under it, and make the long trip back up the stairs. He never really had a moment of peace. Taking time off would cost thousands of lives. The most peace he would ever get 
was when he made his way to the solar array control room on the abandoned Titan. His steps would echo down the hard surfaces of an empty and silent ship. And then he would finish this leg of the loop and he could put down the coupler, if only for 15 minutes, and rest, as it filled up with a dark blue glow. He would sit down next to it, with his hand on it, looking out at the observation windows of the solar array control room. To maximize the efficiency of the refueling panels, officers on the bridge had moved some levers and pushed some buttons and turned a knob that were all connected to some wires, and those wires were connected to some machines that turned the entire collective mass of two ships such that the large carrier was facing the deep red star. Sisyphus never talked to anyone about how he was the only person who regularly saw the star in its entirety. He never really had the opportunity to tell anyone anything, really. He took his meals on the go. He slept in short bursts as the coupler refueled. He just let the rest of the people on the Perilous go about their business in the shadow of the Titan, occasionally seeing a rogue sunbeam reflecting off some of the external architecture of the carrier. They never saw what he saw, an undulating, perpetual sunset and sunrise all in one. That moment alone was really the only thing that could bring him peace. All that could be heard was the soft hum of the refueling coupler, accompanied by the warm, deep red sunlight that shone through the observatory window. Nobody sighing, no screaming children, nobody talking under their breath about him, no overdue reminders on his tablet. Just him. Him and the soft hum and dark blue glow of a coupler refueling along beside him. The Sisyphus is a production of the Nihilist Podcast Network. Nihilist Podcast Network.